As usual, I asked our guest, Mike Leone, to pound the table for some of this offseason. Mike, who you pounded the table for? I'm going to pound the table for the Dallas Cowboys offense in general. I know the ADPs are pretty rich here, but... I just I think there's a chance they go absolutely nuclear if Dak is healthy. We were starting to see it last year before he got hurt. It's such a talented wide receiver trio between Lamb, Cooper, and Gallup. Dak's efficiency is off the charts. And you know, most importantly, it's an offense that's just going to run so many plays. They're very, very fast paced. And when you combine that with a defense that isn't that good, even if they don't have a crazy aggressive pass rate, like relative to game script, they're going to have to throw a lot just based on what the game script is going to be. So uh, when you're running a lot of plays and forced to pass, the upside is off the charts. And I think the talent is there. So I am pounding the table for the Dallas Cowboys offense. Awesome. Hard to argue with that with what they did early last season. So uh, listeners, go establish the run and establish your roster with as many Cowboys as you can. Now let's get to the show. Welcome, everyone, to the most accurate podcast. I am your humble host, Brandon Niles. My co-host today is the unparalleled Chris Allen. Chris, how you doing, man? I'm doing great. I'm glad to get a chance to sit down with our guest, with Mike Leone here. And then also we get another special guest in my brother, uh, TJ Hernandez, as well. So I'm excited to get a chance to talk with everybody. So let's get into it, man. Uh, thank you so much, Chris. Like you said, we've got TJ Hernandez here as well, uh, 444's director of DFS, uh, at TJ Hernandez on Twitter. TJ, how you doing, buddy? Good, man. Thanks for having me. Uh, stoked to be here and talk with you guys and, and talk with Leone as well. We both did some uh, some similar studies. We went at it from a different angle, but it's going to be fun to compare notes on it. Awesome. Uh, as you uh, alluded to, and as I mentioned in the cold open, we're pumped to have Mike Leone, Director of Analytics, here on the pod today at Establish the Run. You can find Mike on Twitter at Two Hats One Mike, which is one of my favorite Twitter handles. Uh, and check out all his awesome content over at Establish the Run, which remains one of the best resources out there for any in-depth analysis you're trying to find. Uh, Mike specifically is a leader in the field. Uh, Mike, appreciate your time. Thanks so much for joining us. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. You know, Pumped to be on the show. Really appreciate you guys having me on. Awesome. Uh, we're going to get into some best ball and specifically underdog strategies today uh, based on some stuff that you've written recently and that TJ has been working through as well. Uh, first, I want to give you a chance to gush about Josh Allen and the Buffalo Bills since I, I know you've been a longtime fan and anytime TJ's on, I like I like Josh Allen to come up. Uh, so I can appreciate what it's like to struggle through bad seasons based on uh, uh, be my Dolphins fandom and a prolonged search for quarterbacks. So uh, tell me how you feel about how optimistic you are about your team heading into the season. I'm pretty optimistic and it's it's a weird feeling. I'm admittedly someone that wasn't into Josh Allen when the Bills drafted him. And even after his sophomore season, I was still pretty skeptical. And the leap he took last year was gargantuan. You know, I mean, it's unprecedented, the year two to year three leap that he had. So that gives me a lot of excitement. And the coaching staff gives me a ton of excitement. Like they clearly show that they're going to evolve into the modern game. You know, they were second in the NFL and pass rate over expectation. They have made some quotes this past offseason about, you know, if they're going to fix their running game, it's not going to be running more. It's going to be running more efficiently, which basically tells me, you know, they don't care about the haters. They're just going to keep throwing the ball all the time. And uh, it obviously worked out well for them last year, the addition of Stefan Diggs. So I'm really excited. I think they should be able to compete again this year. You know, they made it to the AFC championship game last year, and I think they're you know, just as talented this year. 
Awesome, awesome. Uh, and speaking of the Bills, are, are you buying any of those running backs? I uh, I know I go back and forth on which ones I like and if I want any. And I, I know we have a, a, a big uh, Zach Moss fan on the podcast currently. But uh, I'm curious, are you buying any of those running backs? I'm buying them here and there when they really fall. I mean, Devin Singletary has gotten really cheap at times. Like I prefer Zach Moss to Devin Singletary, but the ADPs reflect that. And you can get Devin Singletary in like the mid-teens round sometimes. And there aren't very many running backs late that you can rely on. I know TJ even talked about in his running back article, I think it was after round 16, you know, th- these running backs are barely ever even counting towards your team. So I'm in on Singletary a bit. I think as a group, the running backs just have to score more fantasy points than they did last season, given how strong the offense is. It's a weird spot where you have a dynamic offense but you've also got a team that won't run the ball. They don't throw that much to their running backs and they have Josh Allen stealing goal line rushing touchdowns. So even though the offense puts up a ton of points, you don't really have a ton of high value touches for the running backs. So it's kind of this weird enigma where I feel like they have to do better collectively than they did last season. But at the same time, there are some serious barriers to them having a high ceiling. So I like them a bit better in basketball than in managed leagues where I'm not necessarily worried about like Devin Singletary going out there and having a huge ceiling. I'm more worried about, you know, in round 14, can I get a running back, you know, whose score is just going to count for me and prevent me from taking zero some weeks. Yeah. I think I'm with you there, Mike, because when you're looking at running backs towards the back end of the end of your draft, uh, like at least, especially around that time where either of those guys go, I'm really looking for more upside than what either of those two present. So give me a guy like maybe a Daryl Henderson or maybe Latavius Murray, like th- that type of archetype where, you know, at least at the very least that, uh, I mean, should the guy in front of them wind up going down, they wind up having at least a larger workload, at least the touchdown equity might be there for one of those guys. But when you're looking at the Bills offense, I'm just really more uh, more focused on the passing game. I mean, I know a lot of folks are now into stacking or trying to use some sort of correlation within their lineups. And the Bills passing game, for all intents and purposes, is one of those passing offenses that you can stack at a, like relatively reasonably affordable uh, prices. And we know that Stefan Diggs is going at about like the one, two turn. Josh Allen is going around the, I'd say like the four five turn, like somewhere in there. But then if you, depending on which Uh, ancillary receiver that you really want to focus on, whether it's, uh, I know that Emmanuel Sanders has been getting a bit more hype, Gabriel Davis, I know that some folks might be looking uh, to to him in his sophomore season, or even Cole Beasley, although there's obviously with the whole anti-vax thing, we might have to account for some missing games. But regardless, it's like any of those like wide receiver twos, wide receiver threes that are part of that offense, they're going so late that you can you can establish a double stack for, uh, with the Bills in a passing attack that was, I want to say, what top five in neutral passing rate, a uh, top ten in uh, for red zone passing rate, top five also in EPA per play. So I mean, this is an efficient offense with a ton of volume, and you can get at least two of the pass catchers associated with Josh Allen at again at decent cost. So for, at least for me. I mean, when I'm trying to structure my teams, it really has been more around the passing attack like versus trying to figure out between either of the two, uh, between Moss or Singletary, which one I want to choose. I mean, if I am, I kind of lean towards the, the same way you're going, Mike, in terms of if I see Singletary falling, okay, fine, I'll take him. But for the most part, it's just been trying to get as many of the pass catchers attached to Josh Allen as I possibly can. 
See, I, that's awesome, Kristen. When I imagine you uh, talking about the Bills, I, I'll be honest with you. I imagine you kind of going Sunny Weaver with like the the post-it note that says, you know, Zach Moss, no matter what. So it's good to hear such a reasonable <laughs> response from you. Uh, TJ, since we're talking Bills, before we get to our main segment, which is those best ball league strategies and builds, uh, you were on Josh Allen early last offseason. <laughs> And you were also the reason that I had so many shares of him in the seventh round last year. Uh, yeah. People always ask you who the next one is, and that probably annoys you. Uh, but I, I got to ask you, since you're here, who's the next Josh Allen, or is the answer just go get Josh Allen again? I wouldn't say annoys as much as haunts me now. That's just going to follow <laughs> me every year. Um, no, I mean, the the thing that gets overlooked in that that Josh Allen article is like, I was I I said that there were eight or nine guys that had the QB1 in their range of outcomes. Um, and it didn't, and it also mentioned that he was still going like pretty cheap, especially in non best ball leagues. Like you were still getting him in the double digit round. Sometimes um, I just put out a study this week that uh, kind of showed how efficient quarterback uh, ADP is getting specifically quarterbacks. Like only uh, three quarterbacks drafted outside the top 12 finished inside the top 12 last year. So that's like kind of a way to, to dance around it. I think it's going to be really hard for um, anyone to crack the top eight or nine that isn't drafted there this year without injuries. Um, but with that said, I mean, Joe Burrow's already going, uh, as, as the QB nine, but he's mobile enough with enough weapons now where he could really take a second year leap. Um, uh, I, I really like what the dolphins have done, um, uh, around Tua. he's a guy that could take a second year leap. And then, um, of course we have, uh, Jalen hurts who came on, on really strong late last year and has all of the rushing upside, uh, but he's already going as the QB eight. So, I mean, those are the three guys that I think can really outperform their ADP. Uh, I just don't think there's anybody going outside of the top eight or nine guys that has the QB one in their range of outcomes like Allen did last year. So, I mean, if you're playing best ball, um, guys like Tua are, are getting drafted, obviously, because everyone's taking two or three uh, quarterbacks um, on every roster. But if, if you're in redraft, um, I'm really kind of targeting targeting a, a top 10 guy, which is something that we typically haven't done with kind of late round quarterback and, and streaming over the last couple of years. So I know I dance around the question, but I'm, I'm just warming up to dance around the question for the next two months. <laughs> nice. I love it. Folks, 4 for 4 has partnered with Underdog Fantasy to give you an easy way to claim a free, no-strings-attached pro subscription to 4 for 4 for the current season, plus $25 instantly deposited to start playing. Just enter 4 for 4 in the promo code box and deposit at least $10 when you sign up at Underdog. This is a screaming great deal and a fantastic opportunity for anyone who's been on the fence about joining to sign up with no risk. Sign up at Underdog Fantasy today. So uh, we're going to go into our main segment. We're not going to kind of do any uh, any time killers right now because we've got Mike on and we want to talk best buy builds uh, or best ball builds. Mike, you recently wrote a fantastic article for Establish the Run. You were highlighting your running back strategies in best ball formats, and uh, I liked your breakdown in the uh, in this follow up article you did from last year about about how like the hyper fragile running back strategy. Uh, can you give us a rundown on what that is and why it's something you're advocating for? Yeah, the hyper-fragile running back strategy is one that Mike Beers first wrote about for Rotoviz a few years ago, and I kind of discovered it myself last year in the offseason when I was doing some work looking at best ball constructions, and I approached it from a different standpoint, which wasn't just looking at past win rates. It was kind of like trying to simulate teams across multiple seasons, and 
I kind of noticed that some of these teams that only drafted three or four running backs surprisingly did really well. And the, so the basic concept of the hyper fragile running back strategy is to draft running backs early, but don't draft a lot of them. And the main reason behind that is the running backs early have the highest ceiling, especially from day one, which matters in best ball because you know, week one counts the same as week 14. Even if you're playing in the best ball mania tournament, if you need, you know, if you're trying to advance, you know, it's not like a league playoffs, like in redraft where you can have a monster team by the end, you know, that first week counts as much as week 14 in terms of trying to get your team to advanced. And these running backs have the highest ceiling. And in general, what happens is they either hit and by hit, I mostly mean they just stay healthy and don't completely bust. And when that happens, you're using their score almost exclusively and when they don't hit your win rates are dropping so dramatically that anything you do around that doesn't really help so essentially what you want to do is draft teams and really optimize your roster as if these three or four running backs you're drafting are going to stay healthy and when you do that you have more draft capital to get maybe an elite quarterback or elite tight end one of the onesie positions early you're able to make up for a lack of wide receiver quality with wide receiver quantity, which is hard to do in managed leagues because you have to pick who you start. But in basketball, it's a little bit easier because there's more variance at the wide receiver position week to week. You know, it's less volume dependent, especially on a half PPR site like Underdog. If a guy's just seen the field, you know, he can go two for 80 and a touchdown. And it's not a massive week, but it's pretty important. So, that's really, you know, the basic concept around hyper fragile is take, take the high ceiling guys early, but don't try and like overhead yourself and take too many running backs total. I really loved when the strategy first started coming out, because I know for, at least in my experience, seeing a lot of the best ball strategies really starting to the filter out into the community. I mean, we are, we always had like the, the zero RB strategy, but I remember I was a part of the best ball command center that Mike Beers had put together. It was like him, uh, folks like Joe Pano, uh, Todd Burroughs, uh, Dan Williamson at Overhyped Sleeper. I mean, a lot of like the heavy hitters that were part of the best ball community for a while. And I remember seeing them like discuss like part of this strategy. And of course, I hear the strategy, right? You hear the let's take three RBs early. We'll, uh, then we'll just hammer wide receivers, try and get a uh, decent, uh, we'll hit the onesie positions as we can. And then we'll try and leverage like those like workhorse workhorse running backs. And of course, one of the things that we really don't get into, or at least a lot of folks don't really take into account, is is the nuance of some of those strategies, right? It's uh, it's the context of how that strategy can be can be implemented. And so, of course, me being the guy that's oh, okay, you just take three early and let's go ahead and take some wide receivers after that. I wind up with teams like like last year where it was I'm taking. Dalvin Cook and then maybe Joe Mixon or carry on Johnson. And then like, let's say Marlon Mack as like my first three, first three running backs. And it's like, you don't really take into account the fact that when you were, uh, depending on your starting draft slot, the guys that you might be taking at the very start of your draft. So like the Saquon Barkley's, the Christian McCaffrey's, Ezekiel Elliott's and whatnot. And the guys that you'll get, uh, you'll get at the turn, like last year, if I'm remembering ADP correctly, I want to say it was like Leonard Fournette was going around like the two, three turn, but these are like actual like workhorses. I mean, guys, at least that we were projecting for at least the majority of the volume on their team. So it's like, 
understanding not just the high level concept for this for the strategy, but also the nuance associated with it. That's really where you wind up seeing at least how the strategy can be implemented properly. So I see a lot of folks still trying to use or at least use that similar approach in underdog drafts or even on FFPC to some degree. But I think that's where some of that uh, some of that context gets lost because you'll see guys start off drafts with, I don't know, like Nick Chubb, Austin Eckler, uh, then maybe grabbing a Chris Carson in the third round or something like that, and then trying to and then trying to build off of that where it's you don't really harness the same power of a strategy like hyper fragile if you do start off your draft with let's say uh, uh let's see if you're in the first like uh, first three to four picks where do you got Dalvin Cook Antonio Gibson and maybe possibly Ceh afterwards where it's like you can once you get the names associated with it you can hear almost like start to calculate in your mind the advantage that you would see or you can you can have with having those uh, three running backs that I just mentioned versus the, the latter three. So I think it's really about uh, understanding not just what does this hyper fragile strategy mean? Like what, what are we talking about when we say that? No, it's drafting early, drafting running backs early and then uh, hammering wide receivers in the ones who positions later. But it's just really how you can leverage your draft slot in order to really bring the concept home. And then of course, afterwards, you can see like where it can be the most beneficial if you look at uh, like the study that you've done, Mike, like how it can really impact your ROI and like your win rates if implemented correctly. Yeah, I think using it around a you know a top tier back you're obviously embedding a bigger advantage you know if you're lucky enough to get the 101 with Christian McCaffrey the way to get the most value out of that pick is to assume you're using Christian McCaffrey's score every single week and of course mm-hmm. that you know that's the way we really want to optimize so if we're taking too many running backs all we're doing is cannibalizing this advantage that we got and to your point about context it's becoming a little bit harder. I think we're going to talk about the landscape, you know, a little later on in the podcast, but one of the big reasons why it's been so effective in the past is just the field takes too many running backs Mm -hmm. and the field's starting to get a little bit sharper with that. And as they're getting sharper with that, you do have to be a little bit pickier and choosier when you implement this strategy, because, you know, if the guy with Christian McCaffrey is doing a hyper fragile build and you're doing it at the back end of the first round, you kind of both have the same concept that your top three running backs are going to be your scores. Well, he's got Christian McCaffrey. You've got Austin Eckler. You've just basically given him 50 points. You know, you've spotted him 50 points unless Christian McCaffrey gets hurt or something. So now when you talk about either the strategies that we were talking about beforehand, I mean, they, do you, can you really like tell the difference or not really tell the difference, but can you talk about some of the differences between the two of those? I mean, I know for at least for me, it's really about understanding uh, between like zero RB and like hyper fragile. It's all about leveraging the different strategies that you see folks using. And so beyond that, though, is there more like nuance? Is there more context to that discussion versus just saying, well, with zero RB, you're really waiting on taking running backs and hyper fragile, you're trying to collect them early. Like, is there more nuance that needs to be had to the to the discussion versus, I guess, what we typically see, like kind of scrolling across Twitter? Yeah, as counterintuitive as it seems, these two strategies are, are somewhat rooted in the same tenets. You know, they're both kind of playing on the fragility of the running back position with hyper fragile. You're just accepting that fragility and that's, you know, you're not wasting your 
you know, draft roster spots on backup running backs. You're accepting the fragility and taking the ceiling of a few running backs early and you're not hedging, you know, with zero RB, you're kind of playing towards benefiting from the chaos a bit more where you're not taking any of the running backs early because you know, late running back picks can get thrust into volume because it is such a volume dependent position, whether it's an injury in front of them, a bust in front of them. So they're somewhat similar, but you're taking advantage of it in different ways. And in both strategies, you do want to beat your opponents in the wide receiver spots. You know, you start three wide receivers. You want to beat your opponents in the flex, and you just do it in different ways. With zero RB, you ha- you've drafted so many elite wide receivers that that's where you're getting your advantage. With hyper fragile, you're able to draft so many wide receivers and take advantage of the variance and spike weeks that you're still counting on yourself beating teams in that wide receiver three spot, in the flex spot. So I do think like it, it is a little bit nuanced and these strategies aren't as philosophically opposed as they probably seem. You know, They seem like they're direct opposites, but it's really just kind of like a different way to take advantage of like some of the same original intent. Yeah. One, one of the things that, um, I mean, you guys both talked about and, and Mike, you really discussed in your article. I just, I kind of framed it as leaning into the risk of these strategies. Um, we saw like going back to the, the zero running back strategy teams. I, I looked at it just from a best ball mania perspective, teams that uh, advanced through the first round, which our, our primary goal is, the teams that started with a really robust or, or hyper fragile build uh, were they were much more likely just to to stick with four running backs than the field was um, because like you said like if you are building with say four running backs in the first five rounds or something like that uh, even if you take a stab at at a fifth running back in the whatever twelfth thirteenth round like that guy is ba- whether he gives you. 10 points or, or zero points, he's basically a zero for you because you should be building your roster in such a way that you're never using that guy. So I think people kind of get lost in kind of the, the psychological rift between best ball, especially tournaments and redraft, where even if you do start with a running back early strategy and you draft that say fifth or sixth running back, like you can release him on waivers, you can trade him. And I think it's really hard for people that haven't played a lot of best ball to, to grasp that concept that that guy is just regardless of what he's scoring. He's just a zero for you. If he's scoring six or seven points and if he's outscoring your, your uh, guys that you built a, um, a hyper fragile build around, or if you, those guys do fall to injury like that team's pretty much shot anyway. So yeah, you're already I, in trouble. <laughs> yeah, I, I just, I don't, I don't think, I don't think people understand that like they're, they're building with this kind of insurance policy in mind that if your CMC or Saquon goes down, well, now I have a running back on the back end that could break out too. That's not how you win, especially in best ball tournaments where mm-hmm. we're, we're not just trying to cash. We're not going for top 50%. We're not going for top 33%. You have to be in the top one or two. I think it's three to advanced this year um, in best ball mania. But the point is you really need to be in the top of your league and have the upside to get through these rounds later. Um, so, so understanding what it means to lean into the risk of these strategies, I think is really important. 
Yeah, I, I like this. Just keep that in mind, listeners. Like, it's the Ricky Bobby strategy, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. if you're going into tournaments, like TJ said, cash game's a little different. But if you're going into tournaments, it's if you're not first, you're last. Like, that's the way to go. So the hyper-fragile builds is what I've been doing for that same reason, assuming that if I take Saquon Barkley in the first round at the end or if I take Christian McCaffrey with the number one pick and that doesn't work out, I'm already screwed. <laughs> yeah. Um. I'm So I, I think that... A lot of, I mean, I wrote it about a, a lot. Mike wrote it about a lot. We're looking at like hyper fragile builds, zero running back builds. These these types of builds are very successful in, especially in tournament settings, because they really do um, like lean into to the upside and the risk associated with the strategies and trickle down to the, all the other positions. Um, but at the same time, like depending on where we're drafting um, or just how the draft flow goes if you're not able to get some of the players you're expecting to get and you are playing 50 100 150 tournaments um sometimes how your teams are built out and and what an optimal build looks like is going to be different so i i guess what i'm wondering mike is are you going into say say best ball mania where you could enter 150 times um you're not. I'm assuming you're not trying to have a hyper fragile build 150 times. Uh, also, not not trying to have a a zero RB build 150 times. Are you are you treating it like a player portfolio? Are you going into the tournament kind of thinking you're going to do specific builds a, a specific number of ways? And are you ending up with a fair number of teams in that middle range where you are ending up with the the five or six running backs that aren't straight zero RB that aren't straight hyper fragile? Yeah, I'm definitely trying to mix up my builds and there's a few reasons. First off, I thought it was really cool that both my article on running back strategy and the one that you did, TJ, mm-hmm. we essentially found the extreme strategies work pretty well, you yeah. know, regardless of what it is. And I think it just, aside from the other things I already said, you're really maximizing your early draft capital with mm-hmm. extreme strategies. Like you're you're squeezing the max benefit out of assuming your early picks go right and just accepting you know, defeat if they don't go right, which is the correct way to play it. Uh, even in regular leagues, you know, not even in, yeah. in just tournaments, I think even in regular leagues. So with that in mind, I'm open to, you know, more than one extreme strategy, the zero RB win rates last year in the best ball mania tournament were very strong. They were better than I expected. So I'm implementing that a bit more this year, but also the field, you know, with, you know, Justin Herzig, who's done some best ball stuff for us at established the run. He won the tournament last year with a hyper fragile team and he's really into it and he's been touting it. And we've seen it just gain a lot in popularity that, you know, like any strategy, the more people that do it, the less effective it becomes to an extent. So Mm -hmm. I am doing some teams. I don't want to say I'm middling it because I really don't like the middle strategies, but I like having an anchor RB to start. And then Mm -hmm. I can kind of feel my way through the draft where I can either go hyper fragile based on, you know, how the room is drafting, or I can do, you know, like that anchor running back strategy, modified zero RB, whatever you want to call it, where I don't draft my second running back for a really long time. So I'm doing a mix kind of like anchor RB straight hyper fragile and like full zero RB, you know, I've done yeah. some teams from the turn where I'll start digs Adams and I'll go like really full zero RB. And on those teams, I'll draft six to seven running backs. And then the other thing I'm doing with the hyper fragile teams this year that I wrote about in my article is I'm making them like even more fragile. You know, when I first wrote about the article it was like, take three or four running backs in the first six rounds. Now it's for me, it's kind of like 
take two running backs in the first three rounds or so, then maybe take like a Rojo type in round eight or nine. Yeah. And then like in a, an upside swing or like a safeish back in the teens round and like, the, you know, kind of make the hyper fragile, even more fragile and really count on those top two backs carrying the load. And that is more of a tournament strategy than a regular cash strategy. The hyper Rojo. A hyper hyper rojo strategy shout out to pat crane <laughs> i mean th- that's the the way you're you're approaching that's really interesting because what i think about when i'm thinking about like my player portfolio is through my first i don't know 30 or 50 drafts or something like that I, i'm more or less letting the the draft come to me in terms of of players stacks that i get um, where values are falling and then i'll kind of start managing my shares like if i realize that i wanted to be super high on a player and for some reason i only have like 20 percent of them i might start i might start uh taking that guy a few picks ahead of adp just so i i end the season with uh, as many shares i was hoping for is that something that you're kind of thinking going into something like a best ball mania like if for whatever reason you you don't end up with as many anchor rb or hyper fragile rb teams um are you going to start forcing that later in the season if if you notice that you're really low on on one of the builds that you like a lot i think so i i i mean right now i'm taking each draft on its own but like mm-hmm. if i did notice one strategy starting to dominate i probably make a more conscious effort to mix in the other strategies i yeah. do think hyper fragile will get a little bit easier to do as we get closer to the season with more casual players drafting uh, so that's something that's in the back of my mind. And also if you are doing hyper fragile, this isn't exactly your question, but I do think you really want to diversify the backs you're taking early. You know, you don't yeah. want to take the same three backs as your hyper and one of them gets hurt and it downs all your team. Mm-hmm. Like the whole point of the hyper fragile strategy is like not even necessarily being quote unquote right on a guy. Like it's like your running back stayed healthy. Like honestly, it's sometimes it's that simple. They stayed healthy. So you use their score 90% of the time. Like that's the goal of this strategy. Yeah, no, I I think that's really important. I think a lot of people that, that haven't played best, best ball a lot, um, especially high volume uh, don't understand that. Like they can read our articles and and implement these strategies but if you're only playing five or ten leagues um you might not get the natural pick variance that comes with playing 100 or 150 leagues and that kind of will naturally take care of what you're talking about those early round picks like if you don't have a top three pick you're not going to have many shares of, of Saquon or Derrick Henry, right? So you need to play a lot of drafts to be able to get that natural variance, not just in your roster construction, but in those early round players. And those early round players, you kind of should have a um, a somewhat even distribution of exposure to those because it's so heavily based on where you're picking compared to guys in the later rounds, like the mid-round targets you have a little more control over because you could take them five or six spots ahead of ADP. So I mean, not kind of outside the scope of this this discussion, but if you are somebody thinking about playing the tournaments, you have the bankroll that's going to let you play 10 best ball mania tournaments, you might be better suited dropping down to the $5 level of the tournament yeah. that they're going to release and being able to get exposure, not just to all of those players, but all the different roster constructions because you are at the mercy of the draft in so many of these aspects. That's a really good point because I think your edge a lot of the times in best ball is more roster construction than it is player specific. So 
I definitely, if I could only do, you know, 10 best ball mania teams, you know, which is 250 bucks, or I could do, you know, five times that in the, the $5, once they released that, like I would rather do the five times it because you're going to start seeing over more and more teams that you're just advancing teams to the playoff rounds at a much higher rate than your opponents. And then at that point, you know, you're kind of just rolling the dice once you get there, but the skill, the majority of the skill, in my opinion, is just getting there in the first place by drafting smart plus EV structures over and over again. Yeah, but we know everyone's going to ignore us and just chase that million dollars, right? <laughs> of course. That's, that's, that's what you got to do. Um, I, I mean, Chris, I'll let you jump in. But I mean, just since we're on like this roster construction and, and, and playing against the field, do you I mean, you mentioned a, a little while back that uh, we see the field kind of adjusting properly and, and more people kind of following Justin's lead after he won the tournament. But this is a tournament that is going to probably go through through August, depending on, on when it fills in terms of drafts. And typically, as we get closer to the season, we're going to see more casual drafters entering all types of leagues, including the best ball mania. Um, is it something that you're going to kind of keep an eye on as we get closer to the season? If if we do see more casual drafters in leagues and not implementing these strategies we're talking about, what what we think is a zig when everybody's zagging kind of going back to what the sharp field is doing because there's so much dead money in the tournaments. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm like dialing back some of the, like I said, the hyper fragile builds I'm doing now. And I could see myself picking that way up. Like one of the issues now, again, is teams just aren't overdrafting the running back position as right. much. And that hurts you in a couple of ways, but the receivers that you take at the very back end of drafts, like part of the reason hyper fragile works is because you're getting like even your 10th receiver is a guy who's starting, like he's seeing the field mm -hmm. and we're starting to see like rounds 15 to 18 at wide receivers start to get a little bit iffy. Maybe it's because we don't know the depth charts yet. Maybe it's because of the talent of the drafters, but come August when we have a better feel on, you know, who's the slot guy for Washington, you know, things like that. And if we're playing with more casuals who are taking six running backs when they should be taking four. And that means there's more wide receivers available to us later Then I will pivot and try and get my money in good with the strategy that makes the most sense at that particular point in time. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just over here taking notes. I'd like to say that I have like a lot to add to this and, and I love best ball and I've been playing more best ball over the past two years than I ever have before. And I'll be uh, increasing uh, my volume this year as well. But you know, I, I'm hearing all these like pitfalls that TJ's mentioning and uh, and that Mike has mentioned. And I'm like, oh, that's where I went wrong last year. So this is nice. This is very good. I get to just sit here and take notes. It's 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 awesome. Chris, how are you pivoting uh, in your terms of in terms of roster construction? Well, I would say that uh, it's not necessarily just roster construction, but it's also getting exposure to some of these different players, depending on the construction that you wind up rolling with, like throughout your draft, as you're trying to at least be, you're trying to be as flexible as you can, right? So let's say if you do go in and you expect to do something like a hyper fragile build, uh, and you like in somebody winds up taking some of the players. I mean, you wind up getting natural exposure to different players, which like what Mike was talking about earlier should be at least one of your goals. Like if you want to implement such a strategy over and over as part of your portfolio. So it's not like every single draft, it's not going to be 
uh, let's say Saquon Barkley, Antonio Gibson, and then uh, let's say like Chris Carson, like right after that, like those aren't going to be like your three rolling in. Like you might wind up mixing in a CEH here or there, like a Derrick Henry to lead off your draft or something like you get natural exposure to different players, which could wind up helping uh, your portfolio in, in the long run. And almost like the same thing, if you flip it in the other direction, you wind up using different extreme strategies. So let's say if you wind up going from instead of opening a draft with the uh, like with your um, like hyper fragile build, you wind up doing zero RB instead. So now you're having more exposure to those high end wide receivers that you ne- you don't necessarily uh, would would have exposure to in that case. So it's just that's how I want to try and like naturally pivot to each of those. And again, of course, it's all always dependent upon draft slot, right? So that's where I want to try and pivot as much as I can so that you do wind up getting and sprinkling in exposures to some of those players that you know we need, like, you know, you want to have exposure to throughout the draft, like the Stefan Diggs of the worlds. I mean, even uh, let's say like DeAndre Hopkins or any of those elite wide receivers that are going where if you wanted to implement a hyper fragile build, you probably wouldn't have exposure to anyway. So I think, if you wind up having that sort of mindset when you enter, in, in, enter into drafts, you're going to wind up building your entire portfolio in a bit more optimal manner. I definitely agree with with all of those those points. I mean, I, I'm just trying to think about the, the best ways to be flexible um, and kind of implement these strategies into the into our our teams and how we're building our teams. And I guess one of the things that I think about uh, quite a bit with this, and and this kind of ties into when we are drafting our running backs and how we're thinking about the rest of our team is how these running backs are, are fitting into our team stacks. Cause uh, I, uh, I'm not really going into a lot of drafts, especially this early in the season, knowing exactly what stacks I'm going to get at the beginning of the drafts. Um, sometimes it starts with the pass catcher. Sometimes it starts with the quarterbacks, but I am kind of targeting offenses in general. And a lot of times these running backs will naturally fit into uh, the flow of those stacks. So I guess Mike, what, what I'm wondering, I know you've talked a little bit um, about this in a stack article and you've touched on running backs, but how are you not just fitting running backs into stacks? How are you thinking about it going into drafts and how is that tying into your either zero running back or hyper hyper fragile running back strategies? Yeah, I mean, the different stacks I make do play into the strategy that I'm trying to implement. You know, if you're doing, like I mentioned, pounding the table for the Cowboys offense, Mm -hmm. right? So if I have a Dak double stack with Amari Cooper and CeeDee Lamb, like I know I can maybe get that from the back end of the first round. Mm -hmm. That's going to you know, affect the way that I draft. Like that, if if I'm trying to do that, and and honestly, sometimes like, I'll just wake up and like, I'm going to try this from this spot and this from this spot. Like I'll try different things. Um, but if I'm doing that, you know, I might be more inclined to, you know, start like an RBRB at the turn at the one, two, instead of going full <laughs> zero RB, because I know I'm going to have this premium mm-hmm. stack. And then I can like, t- and I kind of want a lot of wide receivers. If I'm going to stack maybe three Cowboys receivers, if I'm going to get Gallup later, I'm going to want a lot of receivers total just to, mm-hmm. you know, kind of, diversify a little bit given that I want to be starting four wide receivers each week. And if Dallas has a bye week or they're just have a down week, I might only be using one of those guys that particular week. So I know I'm going to want more receivers. And I also know I'm obviously not taking a running back in rounds three, four, five, if I'm going Cooper lamb deck. Uh, so that'll play into it. And it's hard to do because 
I could start with Mixon and Eckler at the one, two turn and not get the Cowboy stack. I want to, and have to switch it up, but it plays into it that way. As far as the actual team stack, I think it's slightly plus EV to stack your running back with the rest of that offense, just because if that offense as a whole has a really good year, like everyone's going to do pretty well. Mm -hmm. And sometimes we focus too much on wanting one guy to hit like his 99th percentile ceiling, which might not happen, you know, if you're stacking it with other guys, but like the 80th percentile ceiling outcomes that are more realistic generally are correlated together where just the offense is performing really well throughout the year in general. So I'm not afraid to take Derrick Henry, AJ Brown, like kind of at the, if I'm like a little bit earlier in the draft, you know, I've done that stack and you can try and get Tannehill first or later. So that's the one that I've thought about a little bit. Um, but I haven't done a ton of running back team stacks. Like with that sure. said, it just, it just seems like it hasn't happened a ton for me so far. Yeah, I, th- I think it's that's probably one of of the spots where DFS theory maybe seeps in a little bit more than uh, than redraft theory, just because I, like the the whole stacking concept mm-hmm. has kind of infiltrated fantasy because of DFS, and we don't typically see the the quarterback running back correlation, whether it's like a a, a site study or um, or a GPP. But again, on best ball, it's 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 a little bit different in that we're we're building up that offense right like like you said going back to the cowboys if if you have a lot of cowboys even if it's not within the 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 same team but uh if you're heavy on that team within your portfolio you might have a little bit more zeke um just because you think that offense is going to be going nuts so we're we're kind of trying to corner the the market on that team so it's it's kind of an interesting concept like i went back to the concept of uh kind of just targeting teams throughout the season and, and throughout my drafts. And that kind of carries throughout all the positions. I'm um, one thing that, that I did last year. And I think it really helped me think about how I'm drafting is tracking, not just player exposure or roster construction exposure, but overall team exposure. So again, if I, if I like the Cowboys, not just in my, am I stacking them? Am I getting DAC a certain amount, but am I just getting access to that offense as a whole, as much as possible? And maybe sometimes it doesn't end up on, on one team, but hopefully enough throughout my, all of my teams that I get to kind of see the fruits of that. Would that ever compel you into a cheap stack? And this is to Mike and TJ really. Um, but like if if you look and you say, here's a good pass catching back on a bad offense where I could get everybody cheap, would you might uh, throw some shares in that direction to try and stack that cheap offense? Like maybe we're looking at like the Giants and you, uh, well, I guess I guess Barkley's not cheap, but like the Colts maybe. Like Carson, Carson Wentz and T.Y. Hilton are really cheap right now. Uh, Naheem Hines is a pretty good uh, pass catching back and an option to stack. Would that compel you to go that route if there's someone there? I think, what you can do is these offenses that, I mean, the Colts aren't going to be condensed, but they're so cheap that it like makes up for the fact that they're not condensed and they have a pretty nice playoff schedule, but you can pair skill player teammates together and get that correlation. And like, you don't absolutely have to take the quarterback with it. I know Eric Bime for Roto grinders has talked about this a lot, but in some ways the quarterback is the least important part of the stack, which seems counterintuitive, but generally that's spicy, Mike. I like that. The the, the quarterback points of right. They're pretty replaceable, you know, like Paris Campbell and Naheem Hines for their ADPs 
they can have really, really good years and Carson Wentz could move the needle like absolutely zero. Like obviously if they have really good years, Carson Wentz's floor is probably strong and high. Like he had a good year. He didn't have a bad year, but he's not winning you any leads, you know? So we can bet on the offense without the quarterback and take teammates together. This isn't a running back one, but like I do it with Carolina with, you know, DJ Moore and Robbie Anderson yeah, I'm not forcing myself to take Darnold to complete that double stack if I'm only doing a two quarterback build. So I do think there's reason whether it's a running, I mean, you know, we started talking about running backs, but whether it's a running back or just any skill player, I do think there's some merit in correlating, you know, some teammates, even without the quarterback, especially if you think the offense is either condensed or just in the case of the Colts, just really cheap. Yeah. For, for me, I think a lot of times it will, um, be a decision in in these coin flip scenarios say i i do have uh a zero running back team and and i'm towards the back end of filling out my running back roster i'm looking between something like jd mckissick and and Tariq cohen uh if i have receivers or, or players from either of those teams I've, I've find myself doing this a lot actually with uh specifically with mckissick um if i have uh, a, a mclaurin or curtis samuel on that team already then the coin flip decision will go towards McKissick just because if Washington's a good offense, he might be a player that benefits. Um, Say, I mean, I don't know if people are are on McKissick like that, but I think that's just a really good example of a situation where if I'm trying to decide between a couple of players, the team could be the tiebreaker for me a lot. And like in TJ's example, if things are going well for McLaurin or Samuel, the team is throwing more than maybe we expect. And that's where McKissick plays, right? They're going to be throwing yeah, more. It's the same game script correlation for those guys. At least uh, for the, I know for the running back conversation, this was actually uh, a quick study that I'm doing for uh, a stacks article that I'm trying to get out for four for four here shortly. But the thing that, at least from a hypothesis standpoint, my thought was that I think that good offenses or at least efficient quarterbacks should produce or at least have an effect on the the running game. And so one of the things that I looked at, and this was just for, let's say like, uh, let's uh, top at like uh, above average offenses over the past like couple of seasons, it actually does come out with uh, in comparing the EPA per drop back versus the EPA per rush. And you actually do wind up with a fairly decent R squared, like 0.37. So at least from that's when you look at it over the course of an entire season, because like you mentioned, uh, like like you were saying earlier, Mike, like you could do a Ryan Tannehill, Derek Henry stack. You could do a like Dak Prescott, Ezekiel Elliott stack. I mean, those are the types of stacks like the premium stacks that you could wind up doing or even let's say like uh, let's say Russ Wilson and Chris Carson. I mean, like we think about like the just the natural progression like throughout the course of a season. It's like if we're looking at good offenses, efficient offenses, then regardless of what we think about the wide, like the passing game as a whole, that running back at least should see some benefit of that. And the data kind of does like point in that direction so that while from a DFS perspective, I mean, I've been listening to like you guys like for years, like talking about like the just the negative correlation between quarterbacks and running backs. But if you look at that over an entire over an entire season, especially for a best ball format, there at least is some analytical value to wind up stacking like both the quarterback and the running back. 
And it doesn't necessarily have to uh, be a running back that has the archetype of a, let's say, a Dalvin Cook, a Saquon Barkley or a Christian McCaffrey, right? Because we, we've, we've seen that, like be useful with a Ryan Tannehill, Derrick Henry stack and so on and so forth. So like it is possible, but that's where you really do need to pick your spots and at least have some sort of understanding of projecting out what types of offenses or like which offenses do we think are going to be efficient, like moving forward. And we can look at, you know, historical references like neutral passing rates and all that in order to at least get us in the ballpark of where we think some offenses can be efficient, like moving forward. So I do think that it's possible, but since we're on the topic of stacking and whatnot, uh, at least, or at least the um, like the topic of some of these extreme strategies. Wanted to kind of close things out with just discussing some of our favorite targets, like whether we're using hyper fragile, zero RB, or whatever. And I think we kind of like we've kind of talked around it at some point. But from a hyper fragile standpoint, I mean, if I'm in the early rounds, I mean, where where are you guys at as of right now? Because I think pretty much it's the the first round, uh, like the earlier portion in the first round is pretty much spoken for, right? I mean, it's it's either CMC, it's Saquon, it's Dalvin Cook. I mean, if you want to throw in Zeke, like if you want to kick him up to the front, that's fine. Uh, but one of the guys that I know, like I've heard of, of a number of folks, I think you in particular might talk about, is trying to get a guy like Antonio Gibson here in the second uh, in the second round, just based off of where we think the Washington football team is going to be at uh, now with Ryan Fitzpatrick and whatnot. But I guess where are you at in terms of the targets that you're looking for if you're trying to implement like a hyper fragile uh, hyper fragile approach like to your draft yeah honestly my early targets are so much dictated by draft spot and i'm kind of trying to diversify my early targets in hyper fragile that you know like i guess early second round i'm taking a lot of joe mixon if i'm doing it from the back end of the draft but for the most part i'm spreading stuff around where i have more specific guys if i'm doing like the hyper rojo strategy. Uh, I say that, you know, we, we kind of say that tongue in cheek, but right now Ronald Jones is my highest exposure running back. But I think <laughs> I'd be happy. I think a guy like like him and Tony Pollard are a couple of guys that I really like where I think they have the upside in that build. Pollard would be more like your fourth and final running back, I think, in a hyper fragile build. And Ronald Jones would be more like your third running back, where I think his like I think his reasonable ceiling is better than people think it is. If he basically has a year like he did last year, you're really happy, you know, and that's a team that has a really high win total, uh, really high expected team total. If you look at the Vegas lines that they already have for each week, he, even if he's just a two down back, you know, he's going to get there. And I think he's the type of back that I think makes a lot of sense as a third back in like a very fragile, hyper fragile team where he's a bit more usable. Like he's got this really good combination of like, he's usable right out of the gate, but he like also has this decent upside. So he's someone that I've been taking a lot. And then other guys that I'm keeping an eye on ADP really closely. If Deandre Swift starts falling even further, you know, I did one three RB team. I usually do don't do three RB teams, but every once in a while I'll do RB times three out of the gate. And he's the type of guy that I would do it with. Like last year, I had a lot of success doing that with Jonathan Taylor on some builds. And this year, I think Swift with his ADP falling is like viable in that type of three RB build where you're just hoping it breaks right. You're kind of ignoring the noise on Jamal Williams and the team being bad. Uh, And then Miles Sanders is another guy where if he starts going like, I mean, I got him in late four a couple of times. And at that point, Mm -hmm. 
like I'm pulling the trigger and then like any, if I've started with a running back, all of a sudden, no matter how I've started, it's a hyper fragile team. Even if I just took a running back in the first round and I took Sanders in the fourth, all of a sudden, you know, I didn't plan on it being a hyper fragile team, but it becomes one. And now flip it. So now what we, uh, when you're looking at zero RB targets, I know that earlier in the off season, I know Zach Moss was essentially like the poster boy for zero RB teams, just because we know the upside of being attached to Josh Allen and the bills offense. But I now with, after the draft, I know folks have been looking at Trey Sermon. It's been Michael Carter. Uh, I mean, where are you at, like in terms of like the zero RB target? Some of those guys that we might be trying to target in like the rounds eight through ten, or maybe even later. I mean, once we've already started to establish our running group core after we've drafted so many wide receivers, I mean, where are you at in terms of those targets, like later on in the draft? Yeah, the big thing I'm trying to do is mix archetypes, right? Like. Give me some of the guys with a huge ceiling on pure contingent value. You know, give me some of the pass catchers for floor. Give me some of like the guys like Rojo with, uh, you know, a two down workload. Damian Harris fits in there. You know, he's been going ninth or 10th round. I've been taking Mm -hmm. a a decent bit of Damian Harris there uh, where, you know, he kind of fits in as like a a decently safe target for a zero RB build. So you kind of got like three groups of guys, your pass catchers, your pure contingent value, and then kind of like your two down back with touchdown upside. And I'm just trying to mix and match to like hope that the distributions at the end of the year work out well between that mixture of backs where I've got enough ceiling, I've got enough floor. Uh, but you mentioned Sermon. I think Mostert, you know, with his ADP falling behind Sermon, I know there were some reports today that Mostert's probably going to start ahead of Sermon. I don't know how much I buy that for the duration of the year, but for like almost a full round or two later, I think Mostert's, you know, in that Damian Harris mix where I like him a lot. I take Naheem Hines and James White a lot as the pass catching archetypes. I think there's underrated upside for James White relative to his ADP, especially if it's Mac Jones at quarterback. And then Tevin Coleman is a guy I've been taking a mm. lot at the end of drafts. His ADP mm-hmm. is finally starting to creep up, but it's just a bet on an ambiguous backfield. You know, all the hypes on Carter, but Tevin Coleman for a while there was completely free. And for all we know, he's their starting two down back. Yeah, someone has to touch the ball in New York. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I should probably note that I didn't realize this till we set up this podcast, but Mike and I both use Tony Pollard for our cover boy for our studies. So I, th- <laughs> I think we I think we can go ahead and say that he's a target for uh all of our formats. But uh I mean I, I did kind of just want to touch on one thing on on the zero um RB targets and not necessarily a specific player, but it is really difficult to to be unique in a huge tournament like Best Ball Mania. Like mm-hmm. for the most part, every every player is going to, every relevant player is going to be drafted in 100 percent of leagues. Most even novice players are sticking to some kind of of kind of tight roster construction that's been laid out by people like Mike. So uh, this probably factors more later into the season when we start getting more trainer training camp and, and and beat writer news but think about a player like james robinson last year who had mm-hmm. an extremely high win rate but was really only drafted and depending on your platform only about 10 percent of leagues because lenny was still there and i think it was Dario Gunbuwale was kind of who people thought would be the guy if if Leonard Fournette did get traded so nobody was paying attention to james robinson so mike touched on these 
ambiguous backfield. And one way to be unique is looking for a James Robinson. Maybe it's like a, a Jeremy McNichols where everybody thinks um, it's Darrington Evans who's the backup if anything happens to Derrick Henry. And and you're, you're the only guy that ends up with a McNichols if he ends up taking over if Henry gets hurt. Um, I mean, these are super crazy dart throws and not something you should be doing in every draft. But maybe one out of every 10 drafts. I mean, we touched on how bad super late round running backs are, but it is a unique spot just to make your roster super unique, getting a player that isn't on 100% of teams, even if it's someone that's only on like 30 or 40% of teams, but going super deep in these ambiguous backfields is, is something that's interesting um, in, in tournament specifically. And, and uh, you know, you mentioned James Robinson. I just want to say, you know, you could get him like in the eighth round. Yeah, now. he's a good I'm one. Just saying. Yeah. <laughs> Kinda, you know, mm-hmm. it's it's worth worth considering James Robinson in the eighth round with Travis Etienne taking snaps at wide receiver in camp right now. That's it. That's it. That's it. We are running low on time, so I am going to put an end to this awesome discussion. Uh everyone be sure to follow Mike on Twitter at two hats one Mike. Check out all his elite content over at Establish the Run. Uh Mike, thanks so much again for joining us. Anything else you want to say or plug before we go? Yeah, check out the Establish the Edge podcast as well. Churn out a lot of content there doing uh, division by division look at projections with Ben Gretsch. So part one of that series is out now. Part two should be up early next week. And I just want to say thanks for having me. Really enjoyed the discussion. Awesome. Uh, everyone also follow TJ on Twitter at TJ Hernandez. TJ, a rare treat to have you join us today. Any final thoughts or plugs before we go? Uh, no, nah, man, just always a pleasure to, to jump on TMAP. Obviously, if you're listening to this, uh, following all of the stuff at 444, we're putting out a ton of best ball content there as well. And um, this is a day before July, so we're actually a couple weeks away from some DFS MVP podcast Ooh, episodes. That's exciting. Definitely check that out. Uh, Chris, a pleasure as always. Anything else before I sign us off? No, much love to TJ and Mike for hopping on. Always a pleasure talking with you, Brandon. And uh, yeah, uh, Check out the show. Uh, Definitely go and hop over to ETR and uh, check out all the content they're pumping out. And uh, thanks for tuning in. Awesome. Listeners, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast or follow us or whatever it is you do over on Apple Podcasts nowadays. Uh, You can follow us on Twitter at 2GuysBrandon and at ChrisAllenFFWX. Thanks so much for listening. Have a good day.